Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I see some participants still coming into the webinar and uh, I'm happy to see that our numbers uh, so well received given that uh, this came on so quickly. Um, so as you can see from uh, Tracy's message there, there is a chat function this morning. And uh, you know, after our introduction, I'll go through uh, some of the ground rules or administrative and logistics issues, but I uh, wanted to welcome everybody to another free CC Partners live webinar. If you're not watching this live, then you're watching or listening to episode 27 of the Lawyers for Employers broadcast brought to you by CC Partners. My name is Kelsey Orth, for those of you who don't know me, and today I'm joined by three of my colleagues. I've got Arjun Deer, Brandon Lowell, and helping us out as well is our articling student, Danielle Jagger. For those of you who are meeting us for the first time today, CC Partners is a boutique labor and employment law firm exclusively advising employers. And uh, that's where our slogan comes from, the Lawyers for Employers. Uh, when we're not working remotely, which is uh, off and on these days, our flagship office is located in downtown Brampton and we have offices in Barrie and Sudbury. Online, you can find us at www.ccpartners.ca. So this is the latest in a long line of webinars we've presented on various employment and labor law issues related to COVID-19, and one of several we've, ex uh, we've done exclusively for the childcare sector. So we're excited to be able to, to really focus in on what matters to you all here today. Um, and having looked at the, the list of registrants, um, I'm very familiar with many of you. And to those of you who haven't met or worked with us, uh, welcome. And um, you know, when we're done today, we will put these broadcasts up and I'll give you more information about that at the end of our session. But uh, today's webinar, we really wanna take the time to go over some of the more recent uh, issues that have arisen and uh, when we get to the agenda in a second, we can go over that. Um, but we wanna be able to give you a chance to speak not only with us and ask your questions of us, but also to share your experiences. Um, as many of you know, uh, we learn just as much from, from each other um, in the childcare sector as we do from experts like, um, uh, like us, a law firm. Um, and so, you know, your, your experience throughout COVID has likely been shared by someone, if not all of your colleagues on the, uh, on the webinar today. And same goes for any questions that you have uh, as we deal with some of these new developments. So um, as it says, this is about the developments in vaccination policy guidelines and requirements in the childcare sector. And there are a few things that have um, either changed or come to the fore in recent days. Uh, so if we can switch to the agenda slide. Here's what we're going to talk about today. So 
We saw the recent declaration from Dr. Kieran Moore, the Chief Medical Officer of Health, and immediately started asking questions. I think we all did. And, uh, you know, I'm going to refer to, to we because I'm so ingrained in, in what's happening in childcare uh, these days that I, I feel like one of you, even if it's not my day to day. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously we're going to talk about what that declaration was, what it means, um, compare and contrast that to the TDSB directive. Um, and I recognize that not everybody on the webinar uh, is subject to that TDSB directive, but it is a good point of comparison and a jumping off point for the larger discussions, which are about vaccination policies and COVID-19 case law in general. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit about preparing or modifying um, your current vaccination policy um, and how we can make that more effective and whether we need to change anything in light of either the medical officer of health statement or any other guidelines or uh, information that's coming out. And then we've also had some questions recently about uh, eligibility for reimbursement for um, paid emergency days and uh, other infectious disease emergency leave. So we're going to address that at the end. But again, uh, we want to get your input, your feedback, and, and address your questions. The best way to do that is, and the way we prefer to do that, is rather than using the chat, you'll see at the bottoms of your screens uh, a Q&A button there and if you have a question as we go along um, for any of our speakers or just in general pop it in the q a danielle's uh very adept and is going to do her best to keep things um uh, keep track of everything and then we're going to have a live q a session at the end if your question doesn't get addressed during the course of the presentation or our discussion you know kind of that, uh, that ensues from the presentation today, we will have a live Q&A session afterward. Um, we don't have a lot of slides per se, so we wanna make it more about our interaction with you and your questions than it is about slogging through a bunch of, uh, of material. So that's our goal today, um, is to be able to address and answer and, and have some discussions. And we may not have um, definitive answers on, on every question, but we certainly want to try and address and get the discussion going. So, uh, without any further ado, let's uh, hand it over, and I believe Brandon's going to start us off talking about the instructions officer uh, issued by Dr. Moore. Thank you, Kelsey. Yeah, so I'm going to kick us off by discussing the instructions issued by the Chief Medical Officer of Health on January 17th. Um, they issued instructions for every covered organization uh, to establish or to update its established COVID-19 vaccination policy and implement it by January 20th. Obviously we're a bit past that right now, but that's what we're here today to tell you about. Um, covered organizations within this, these instructions refer to licensees within the meaning of the Child Care and Early Years Act, provincial schools under the Provincial Schools Authority Act, boards and private schools within the meaning of the Education Act. So that likely applies to all or most of you here today. Um, and then the last thing is that the requirements of, of the vaccination policy applies to um, staff, volunteers, and student practitioners in your organization, except where they might work remotely and where their work does not involve uh, in-person interaction. Move to the next slide. 
So can we can we move to the the next one? Thank you. So the um, the required precautions and procedures issued under these instructions are asking that organizations establish uh, COVID nineteen vaccination policies, which require three things. The first is proof of full vaccination against COVID nineteen, or a documented medical exemption supplied by a physician or registered nurse, or the third one is prior to declining vaccination, unless you have a medical exemption, uh, you need to provide proof of completion of an educational session about the benefits of COVID-19 vaccination. Now, just kind of backtracking up to A there, proof of full vaccination can mean different things. Um, and the uh, Ontario Regulation 26320 uh, defines what full vaccination is. Uh, the first thing is obviously full vaccination of a COVID vaccine authorized by Health Canada or any combination. So Pfizer, Moderna, for example, if you had one or both of those, uh, a mix of the two, um, that can be full vaccination. Also, we, I believe we've uh, got the Johnson & Johnson vaccination, which is only one. So if you had one of those, you can be considered fully vaccinated. You can also be fully vaccinated if you've had one or two doses of a COVID-19 vaccine not authorized by Health Canada, followed by one dose of a COVID-19 mRNA vaccine authorized by Health Canada. So if somebody had the Sputnik V vaccine, maybe, and then Pfizer or Moderna, they could be considered fully vaccinated um, under these instructions. And the third would be three doses of a COVID-19 vaccine not authorized by Health Canada. So three, maybe Sputnik V vaccines or something along those lines. And after receiving the final vaccine under any of those three requirements, um, you need to have 14 days until you're considered to be fully vaccinated. So anyone that is going to be providing proof of full vaccination under the requirements of A that I've got listed there, um, they need to meet one of those three criteria. And um, as for C here, um, the educational session about the benefits of COVID-19 vaccination, the only exemption for that is medical. And it's kind of important to note that some people may have religious exemptions. And I, we, we don't know of any case law right now that supports a valid religious exemption, though um, there, that's not, that doesn't mean that there can't be one. So if somebody does have a valid religious exemption, under these instructions, they would still be required to complete an educational session. Um, if they were to not be fully vaccinated. Now move on, next slide. So anyone who does not provide full vaccination uh, or proof of full vaccination, instead is relying on a medical exemption or the educational session, um, they still have to submit to regular antigen testing and demonstrate a negative result. These instructions say at least once every seven days, now these are the minimums and some people may ask, and, and I think Arjun will probably cover this in his slides, but whether we can make something more stringent, make a more stringent requirement. And the answer is, you know, maybe it depends. Um, you need to justify those measures. Um, but as I'll, I'll discuss in the TDSB policy that they, they've got different measures, which is three times per week. So, um, you know, th there may be justification for providing or requiring more testing if somebody isn't vaccinated and is going to be in your in your organization. 
So we'll move on to the next, thank you. Um, collection of information is also required under these, these new instructions. Um, they've asked that, the Ministry of Education has asked that you must collect and maintain um, non-identifiable information. That includes how many employees these instructions may apply to in your organization, how many have provided proof of full vaccination, how many have disclosed receiving additional doses exceeding that which would be considered full vaccination, how many have provided documented medical exemption, and how many have completed the educational session. Um, a, they, they call these people required individuals under the instructions, which, as I said before, re refers to staff, volunteers, student practitioners, may also refer to contractors and other individuals who frequently attend the premises um, at which childcare is provided. So the, this, this information um, needs to be provided to the Ministry of Education um, per the, in the instructions. And the final thing I'm going to discuss is the TDSB vaccination policy. Now, this came out, this was adopted back in September, um, so I'm not going to go through it in, in absolute detail, but I want to set out some of the differences uh, between the instructions for the TDSB and, and these new instructions. Um, the TDSB policy sets out consequences for noncompliance, and that is basically employees who have not attested to vaccination or by the prescribed date, which was November 1st, would be placed on a non-disciplinary administrative leave. Um, these same consequences are not outlined in the, the new instructions by the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health. So it kind of leaves it up to the organization, I suppose, uh, unless you are under the TDSB. Uh, medical exemptions under the TDSB um, directives were allowed, um, but they require people to submit to regular testing three times per week if they're going to be getting a, uh, a, medic a medical exemption. And now this is contrasted to the, the new instructions which require minimum one time per week. Those without, those without uh, medical exemptions and without proof of vaccination under the TDSB directive cannot take an educational course as an alternative um, after the November 1st deadline. So again, this is a little more strict than the new requirements or the new, I guess the new instructions um, from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, which allows for um, an educational course to be taken um, as an alternative. The same statistical information is required um, under the TDSB directive um, with, with respect to how many people are in your organization, how many have been vaccinated. They just also ask that percentages be provided. And so this is something that's not in the, uh, not in the, uh, the new instructions. Thanks for that, Brandon. Before, sorry, Arjun, before we move on, I just sure. saw um, Tracy's comment in the uh, Q&A um, meeting with city consultants and several supervisors and directors who've indicated they've received correspondence um, from the ministry and uh, saying that basically they're still requiring testing two times. They're, they're allowing um, people to be in despite the, so this is TDSB related. Um, and TDSB uh, is allowing people to still do the testing. And um, we may all recall in the lead up to the return to school, the you know significant amount of publicity that it was receiving because TDSB had the policy that they were, you know, 
going to implement and then basically backtrack because they were going to be so short staffed. So, um, Tracy, you're absolutely right. I'm not surprised that that's still going on because the, um, you know, the way that things have been handled, we all know, is far from ideal and certainly the government's kind of ad hoc way of dealing with things um, when it comes to education and especially when it comes to the childcare sector has been uh, made things difficult um, if not next to impossible at times um, but uh, you know in terms of what that means um, and, and what you know Brandon's getting at is the policy that TDSB set out with respect to what it requires um, is a good point of comparison for what the chief medical medical officer of health's um, statement said, and and also you know kind of perhaps applies some of what they. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it, they should be sheepish about it, but likely are not um, about what they learned in implementing, um, you know, the, what the TDSB learned in implementing their policy or trying to implement their policy and then having to essentially waive aspects of it because they didn't have enough staff. And so I, I suspect that um, this declaration from the Chief Medical Officer of Health might be um informed by the the backlash and the backtracking that that tdsb had to do so thank you kelsey and thank you tracy for that yeah that was a great point of clarification kelsey um so we'll move on we'll talk about a case here so i'm gonna start with some bad news um Fortunately, the, the courts have not weighed in on the legality of COVID-19 vaccine policies in, in non-unionized workplaces in Ontario. So the guidance board that we're relying on uh, to date comes from the unionized sphere, uh, where we've seen a number of challenges to mandatory COVID-19 vaccine policies, and there's been varying levels of success. So now for the good news for employers is that the majority of these decisions have been in favor of employers. Uh, so one of the most recent arbitral decisions on COVID-19 vaccine policies, uh, policies which we have decided to spotlight, is the, the Bunge-Hamilton Canada decision. So we think it's important to say this at the outset. Bunge is not exactly a, a childcare center. Um, in fact, they're, they're actually the world's leading oil seed processing company and the world's leading seller of bottled vegetable oils to consumers. So they're a little different, but that's the key here, right? Um, there, there are different workplaces that are being considered in all these different cases, uh, but generally the analysis is quite similar from, from each of the, from the arbitrators. So in this case, the, the employer implemented a COVID-19 vaccine policy requiring employees to provide proof of full vaccination within a period of about two and a half months. The policy indicated that employees who were not fully vaccinated or who did not intend to provide proof of full vaccination would be kind of given two options, right? So, uh, or would not really be given any option. They would just not be allowed to come back on site, on the job site, and they'd be put on an unpaid leave of absence uh, pending a final determination on their employment status. So up to and including termination of employment. So they really left a, a pretty wide spectrum and, and left the possibilities for, for further discipline or how they're going to be treated uh, when they don't comply kind of up in the air. So Danielle, if we can go to the next slide. So ultimately, uh, this policy was upheld. The, our arbitrator found that the public health and safety risks associated with being unvaccinated justified the placement of these individuals on an unpaid leave of absence. 
one thing that we noted is that the, the arbitrator really was in favor of the policy's language, which did not stipulate that employees would be immediately terminated or suspended as a result of non-compliance. Rather, he noted that the employer's verbiage in the policy was open-ended, like we discussed previously, right? So they allowed for the individual circumstances of each employee to be considered when applying the policy. So any consequence for non-compliance were decided on a more case-by-case basis, which is uh, what the arbitrator in this case said is, is the best approach to take. The next slide, please, Daniel. <clears throat> so each of the arbitral decisions that we've been released to date are, are quite similar in nature to the Bunge case in terms of facts, or at least what precipitates the challenge to the policy. Uh, but in our view, the most important aspect of these decisions uh, that really needs to be reviewed is the arbitrator's guidance on what makes or breaks an effective COVID-19 vaccine policy. So that's really my opportunity here for a shameless plug. So should you wish to read more about these specific decisions, uh, we recently published a complete rundown summarizing each of these decisions and, and the takeaways to consider in our Employer's Edge blog, which you can access on the CCP website. So returning back to the takeaways uh, for this webinar, at least, uh, the key to remember when assessing the enforceability of a COVID-19 vaccine policy is that it's highly fact-specific and it's a very contextual exercise. So no two uh, like policies and employers are going to be the same because the arbitrators are looking at, does this specific policy uh, really meet the needs of this specific employer? So we found that policies are more likely to be upheld when employers are offering reasonable alternatives to vaccination. So if you're offering things like regular testing, uh, remote work, or putting employees on a leave of absence rather than terminating, we find that arbitrators seem to like that. Uh, whereas stringent policies are likely to be upheld in workplaces where you know these kind of alternatives just really don't exist, right? Uh, whether it's because of you know the circumstances uh, of who you're dealing with or really just the nature of work. So unfortunately, this may be easier said than done, right? So offering a reasonable alternative as, you know, not only are sometimes is it not possible to offer alternatives, but, you know, more challenges keep arising for employers. Like, you know, we've seen employees pushing back heavily on these policies, and we've seen that in the news on a regular basis. There's a shortage of antigen tests. Um, I've seen them on Kijiji for $100 per test. Like, it's, it's absolutely crazy that there's requirements to be tested and there's no tests available. And, and then we also see the government's kind of backtracking, um, at least some, some governments on, they've come out with, it's kind of what Kelsey was speaking to, they come out with rigid requirements and then they backtrack on what these requirements are when, when they're kind of actually put into place because they realize that it's not really reasonable to expect this from employers and employees. So Danielle, next slide, please. So now let's talk about the burning question on everyone's minds. Probably the reason why you joined this uh, webinar in the first place. I'm, I'm assuming it's two reasons to hear more about the instructions, which were, you know, kind of haphazardly thrown out there. And Brandy did a great job explaining those. But it's also, you know, uh, when when you look at those instructions, how how do you as an employer draft an effective COVID nineteen vaccine policy? Right, uh, you have to take into consideration those arbitral decisions, the new instructions, what happened with the TDSB. There's, there's a lot of different factors that take into place. So we've tried to boil it down for you for, to have some considerations when you're drafting a policy, which obviously we can help you do as well. So the first step to consider is, is the following. That's how your organization runs, who you support, and why exactly you're implementing this policy. Then you need to remember uh, kind of the reasons what the Chief Medical Officer of Health uh, recognized as the basis for providing his recent direction. 
they stated that you know vaccines provide the best protection against COVID-19. Keeping children in school is critical to learning, development, and the well-being of, of students. And, and the protection of children in, in child care and schools from COVID-19 enhances the protection of other community members. So they're all very consistent, right? It's about health, safety, and, um, and trying to be minimally invasive to, uh, to learning. So with that in mind, um, your, your, new, your organization really needs to do what they can to support this new directive, right? So at the bare minimum, uh, employers need to meet the requirements set out in those new instructions. But with that said, there's no real explicit prohibition in these instructions on going above the minimum required stipulations. So we like to look at the, the, those instructions as you know where you need to start as a basis. You can go above that, though. Uh, depending on your workplace and your specific circumstances. So if you look at the, the arbitral decisions that we've actually reviewed, like in that article we posted, um, there's really only been one case to go against employers. This case was the Electrical Safety Authority and Power Workers Union decision. So this case was unsuccessful for the employer because the arbitrator had really concluded that other reasonable options were available to, to the employees. So for instance, the employer could have offered remote work to the employees, which was actually an explicit right given to these employees in their collective agreement. Instead, the employer kind of, again, haphazardly implemented a more stringent policy without really any changing circumstances to precipitate the shift. Uh, the arbitrator noted that the employer had failed to demonstrate any new difficulties that had arose, uh, which would kind of allow them or, or make them come out with a more stringent policy um, and, and get rid of a very flexible policy, which they had previously. That being said, you know, taking into consideration that one losing case, we think the childcare setting is is really very different than that case and that decision, and it's actually quite well suited for a stringent COVID nineteen policy. For instance, most childcare centers, like uh, like your own, I'm sure, alternatives do not exist for remote work. They, uh, you know, it, it's a face to face. You deal with children, right? Like you need to be there at all times. There's very few roles in in childcare that I know of that can be done alternative uh, from from a remote work standpoint, unless we have a complete shutdown, right? And and most importantly, you're you're dealing with high risk children who simply cannot or have not to date been vaccinated either due to inavailability uh, or they're uh, not actually qualified for the vaccine up until recently. So their safety has to be your number one priority and the driving reason behind implementing a very robust policy. So now let's flip it to Kelsey, who uh, who discussed the more administrative aspects of the COVID-19 uh, vaccine policies involved along reimbursement from the government for COVID-19 related sick days. Thanks, Arjun. And just uh, so everyone knows, we, we will definitely be coming back to the discussion on policies and, and amendments and changes to those policies in particular um, with respect to comments and questions about third doses and, and what that means and and so on. Um, you know, the the relative, I don't even know what to say other than stubbornness of the government not to change the, those definitions in the most recent, um, you know, statements that they've made despite uh, all evidence pointing to that being what should be the definition of fully vaccinated. Um, and we'll talk about what implications that can have for policy. But before we get to that, I do want to uh, address some of the other things that have uh, arisen recently, especially as we have more people 
uh, off due to the high transmissibility and infection rates that uh, the Omicron variant has provided in Ontario. So um, under the ESA, and we're going to talk about two different things. First, the ESA, the Employment Standards Act, reimbursement provisions, and then under the WSIB. So under the ESA, um, employers are eligible for reimbursement of paid infectious disease emergency leave um, in a few specific conditions. And these paid days, um, as you know, the amendment to the ESA, excuse me, provided for three paid days of IDEL. Uh, so way back earlier on in the pandemic, the infectious diseases emergency leave was introduced. And then more recently, it was uh, an additional provision was added or additional amendment was added to provide for paid leave. Um, now that more people are accessing it, um, there are more questions about what an employer can do because there is a provision for reimbursement under the ESA. So we're gonna talk about each of these three scenarios here. So the employer can be reimbursed if any of these three conditions are, are met. The employee used some paid leave in their employment contract, but not all of it, or the employment contract. And when we say employment contract, that means either um, an employment contract in a non-unionized setting and by extension, any policies with respect to sick leave that's provided or uh, sick leave that is provided under the terms and provisions of a collective agreement, <clears throat> a collective agreement for our unionized employers. Um, so the second scenario there is the employment contract that provided less uh, entitlement than what is provided for under the ESA or less pay then the full, so, you know, a sick day is only half pay or something like that. Um, and then the third one is where the contract itself provides for uh, less in the way of entitlements than what the ESA provides. So if you have an, a, a policy or a collective agreement that says employees get two sick days, then obviously that would be less than what's provided for under the ESA. So let's walk through some examples of those. Um, Simplest one, and we'll, we'll keep it simple here. So the, under the first one, the employee, um, if the employee has three days and uses all three days and they had used them before the date of this coming into play, April 19th, 2021, they would get three days under the ESA and the employer would be repaid for those three days. But that's all you're required to do. If prior to April 19th, 2021, and this is a little bit different now because obviously we're into to a new calendar year and that may affect entitlements under either a collective agreement or under your policies. But essentially what we're talking about is before things replenish, before entitlements replenish, if they've used not all, if they haven't used all of the days, um, then they would be entitled to the remainder of the ESA entitlement. So let's say an employee has three days under their employment agreement or collective agreement. They only use two prior to April 19th, 2021. They have one more under their employment agreement and they would get two days under the ESA and the employer would be reimbursed for those two days under the ESA. <clears throat> um, 
you know, if if we're if we're worried specifically about retroactivity, we can you know we'll address those questions specifically offline. But this is kind of the way that the legislation is meant to apply. And like all things with the ESA, um, it only gets muddier the the deeper you go. Last scenario for this for the first bullet point is where an employee had five days of paid leave under an employment contract, only used two prior to April 19th, 2021, um, but they still have three days left. They wouldn't get anything under the ESA because the, they've got their three days remaining in the employment contract. And because that's something that the employer already provides, there's nothing you can do um, with respect to reimbursement. So that's kind of the, the retroactive application. So what happens now on the go forward basis? Well, um, if an employment agreement provides for ESA entitlements, um, sorry, for anything that is at least equal to ESA entitlements with respect to sick leave, then you're not gonna be eligible for any reimbursement. If the employment contract though, like in scenario number two provides for less pay than what the ESA provides, and I have to be honest, I don't know many sick leave policies that don't allow for a sick day to simply be a paid day. But um, in the event that that your sick leave policy or, or that somebody had, um, you know, that your sick leave policy provides less pay than a full day of wages up to a maximum of $200 per day, then essentially what the ESA says is, You've got to make you can make them whole, and the ESA will reimburse you for that difference up to a maximum of of two hundred dollars total. So I'm going to leave that one aside because I think that's the least likely. If you don't provide any sick leave whatsoever, you are eligible as an employer for reimbursement if an employee takes sick leave and you have to pay them because of the ESA. So only for three days, but you know, an example, an employee is sick and we have to give them the three days. <clears throat> um, they take them and we get reimbursed maximum of three days. That's as, as simple as it gets. Um, the retroactive application stuff from 2021 uh, is a little bit different, but essentially if you provide sick days right now, um, our view is that the sick days provided for, as long as they are at least equal to or in excess of what is required under the ESA, like any other provision of the ESA, means that you don't have to provide an additional three paid sick days. Now, that doesn't mean you can't, um, but you are unlikely to be reimbursed under the ESA if you provide something over and above what you've already offered. <clears throat> um, so if we move to the next slide then, other ways where you're not going to um, be reimbursed is if the employee received WSIB benefits for the same days of leave, which we'll see uh, in a little bit more detail in, in the next slide, but, um, or if you somehow decided to cancel or rescind the paid leave um, as part of the employment contract or collective agreement. 
Um, <clears throat> so again, that's just whether or not you can get reimbursed under the ESA. Going back to what I said before, if you provide sick days under your sick leave policy, collective agreement, contract of employment, whatever it may be, you're not, that doesn't mean you can't, or that doesn't mean that someone is not entitled to the IDEL, but it does mean that you will not be reimbursed if you pay over and above what you've already provided. And I'm not, I hope I'm making myself clear, but if there are further questions, we can address them in, in the Q&A portion. But essentially, if you provide sick leave and it's at least three days, um, leaving aside the retroactive application of, of things that, you know, from when the, the provision came in in April of last year, uh, for 2022, if you provide sick days and it's at least three days of paid leave, you will unlikely, you will not be likely to be reimbursed under this ESA provision. Um, the question arises often because employees will be asking, hey, what, uh, you know, you owe me an extra three days. That's what the ESA says. That's not what it says. What it doesn't allow is for an employer to say, well, we already provided you those sick days. You can't take the infectious diseases emergency leave. It's just a matter of whether it's paid and whether it's reimbursed. Uh, moving on then to applying for reimbursement through the WSIB. So this is an interesting one. As you know, if you are covered by WSIB, benefits or claims for WSIB benefits are only supported if and when the injury or illness sustained uh, occurred during or arose out of and in the course of employment. So if um, an employee catches COVID at work and misses some days um, and they file a claim with the WSIB and the employer reports and so on, as you're required to do, then the employer can be re reimbursed <clears throat> um, for days missed. And you can be same as the ESA, the limit is up to $200 per day taken. And it's a maximum of three calendar days, regardless of how you count the days. So even if somebody missed two and a half days, um, <clears throat> it's, it, or they, you know, they took four and a half days, you're only gonna get three days of reimbursement. Um, you have to make that application for reimbursement to the WSIB within 120 days of the date that you paid that employee or by November 28th of this current year, uh, whichever is earlier. So the Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills Development is providing the funding for this. So it's not an actual, I mean, it's administered by the WSIB, but it's not the typical WSIB program and it's not um, funded by WSIB, nor do you need to be registered with WSIB to receive this reimbursement. So that's an interesting, that's the you know, kind of only exclusion from the WSIB's typical scheme where uh, you have to be paying into the program like any insurance scheme uh, in order to receive benefits. <clears throat> so that's the WSIB reimbursement 
the ESA reimbursement, I, I hope I didn't confuse things too much. Um, but that takes us to the end of our prepared presentation. What I want to do now is take a, a brief break to switch over to the question and answer period. Uh, we will, as I said, be posting uh, both portions of the presentation um, separately to our webpage, um, and they'll be available on all various forms of media, and they'll give you some instructions on that in a moment. Um, but if you do have to drop off now, uh, we wanted to thank you for, uh, for your attendance. And if you have follow-up questions, um, please feel free to contact any of us. Um, whether it's me, Arjun, Brandon, um, our colleague Charles Bins, who, who couldn't join us today because he's in a hearing. I know he sent out um, to, uh, to our daycare-specific contact list the, uh, the case that Arjun was talking about or uh, some comments on that case. So we're always happy to, to talk and answer any questions you have. Um, but, uh, you know, again, thank you to everyone for coming. And, and if you hold on just a couple of minutes or if you're able to, we will switch over to the live Q&A portion. Um, if you're not able to stick around uh, and you're not already on our mailing list to receive the blogs delivered right to your inbox, just contact us at info at ccpartners.ca and ask to be put on both our regular blog list and the childcare specific list. As I said, the video and podcast versions of this presentation, as well as the Q&A session that's to follow, will be posted shortly and available through uh, the broadcast tabs, broadcasts tab on our website at www.ccpartners.ca. And of course, you can find us on social, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel. And in terms of listening to the podcast versions of this episode and, and any episode, any of our previous episodes of the Lawyers for Employers podcast, and we're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and pretty much wherever you listen to your podcasts. So uh, give us a moment and we will start into the live Q&A momentarily. <laughs> 